Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Our weekly roundtable is back. On the national front, each of our panelists will discuss what is concerning them about what is happening on Capitol Hill, likely including the debt ceiling standoff, what is truth or fake news, conspiracies, and more. And the continued police killing of black and other people of color. Three in Los Angeles, California, within one week, and five black police officers in Memphis, Tennessee, beating a young black man to death. On the international front, Germany reluctantly agrees to send tanks to the Ukraine, this along with the U.S. and several other European countries. What does this all mean for the state of the war and of global relations? And the crisis in Peru continues as protesters are not backing down, forcing the closure of Machu Picchu, a former sacred site to indigenous people, now an international tourist destination, and also the closure of Glencoe Copper Mines. Meanwhile, the OAS weighs in. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. I'm Eileen Alfandari for KPFA. The death toll in Palestine is 10 after Israeli forces raided a Janin refugee camp that killed at least nine Palestinians. Clashes elsewhere left another dead, raising the death toll to 10. Gaza militants then fired rockets and Israel carried out airstrikes overnight. Palestinians have described it as a massacre. Rami Alagari reports from Gaza. Dr. Wissam Bakr is director of Janine's government-run hospital, says Israeli forces shot tear gas at the hospital's children's pediatric ward. They had shot tear gas grenades towards the hospital, especially the pediatric department. We were able to transfer pediatric patients to a safer part of the hospital. Yet, as people gathered around the hospital, a young man was shot dead in the head. Another child beside him was shot wounded in the eye. The injured at the hospital have wounds, critical wounds in the abdomen, the head, and the arteries. We had to bring some more medical staff from other hospitals nearby. Local Palestinian sources in Janine say the army force opened fire on a home killing three men inside while heavy army vehicles crushed several parked cars. The Palestinian Authority and other Arab countries, including Qatar and Jordan, condemned the Israeli raid on Jenin. The PA called on the international community to curb Israeli attacks on the Palestinian population and the West Bank. I am Rami Al-Mirari. A farm worker charged in the killings of seven current and former co-workers at two Half Moon Bay mushroom farms has admitted during a jailhouse interview that he committed the fatal shootings. Chun Li Zhao told KNTV he wasn't in his right mind when he entered a mushroom farm where he worked in Half Moon Bay and shot and killed four people and seriously wounded a fifth. Prosecutors say he then drove to a nearby farm where he worked previously, killing three more people. Sow said he was bullied and worked long hours on the farms and that his complaints were ignored. Senate Democrats are calling for the Federal Trade Commission to investigate the marketing of guns to children at issue, says Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, is the We One Tactical Mini AR-15, called the JR-15. It has a disgusting name. 
It's called the JR15. Can you believe that? The last thing we need to be doing is reducing in size these deadly weapons of war and then marketing them to children. The calls for an investigation come after three mass shootings in California in three days and after a six-year-old shot a school teacher earlier this month in Virginia. Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp has declared a state of emergency, giving him the option of calling in the state National Guard in response to protests in downtown Atlanta that turned violent over the law enforcement killing of an environmental activist said to have shot a state trooper. Though activists say they don't believe that narrative, activists have been protesting to stop Cop City, what's been described as a mega development for a training center in a forest near black and brown communities that activists say will be adversely affected. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Let me welcome and tell you a bit about our panelists. Laura Carlson is the director of the Americas program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she is a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy in Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and international commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you very much, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, and we'd like to welcome Jackie Goldberg, Governing Board Member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to the council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Good to be with you. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books and 100 scholarly articles and reviews. His latest book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S fascism. His other projects include a study of U.S. imperialism in Northeast Africa, principally Egypt and Ethiopia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and a similar study concerning U.S. imperialism in Southeast Asia during the same period. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. All right, we are going to just move ahead here without our news headlines today, and we're going to start out with what I'm calling more trouble in the U.S. And uh, before hearing your thoughts, let's set the tone with a couple of clips. One, a clip about the murder of Tyree Nichols, who was beat to death by five Black police officers. That's a clip from CNN. We're going to follow that up with a clip from Politico of Bernie Sanders talking about the debt limit and that standoff that's happening to key things now happening 
in the U.S. Let's go to those clips now. The Memphis police chief speaks out in a recorded statement, making clear there will be absolute accountability for those responsible for the death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. This is not just a professional failing. This is a failing of basic humanity toward another individual. This incident was heinous, reckless, and inhumane. Nichols died earlier this month after a violent arrest by five officers, five Memphis police officers and two members of the Memphis Fire Department have been terminated. Nichols family is calling for charges to be filed as the community anxiously awaits the police camera footage to be released. The family wants nothing but the the absolute most charge that they that they can bring and, and what they want are murder charges. Attorneys for the family have already viewed the footage and an independent autopsy paid for by the family reveals Nichols died from, quote, extensive bleeding caused by a severe beating. I hate the fact that us as black people, we're out here killing each other. That's right. For what? I, I don't know why. What happened to the humanity and kindness? That's right. Nichols was a driver for FedEx. He'll be remembered as a loving father and son, the baby of the family with a tattoo of his mother's name on his arm. Nobody's perfect, okay? Nobody. Mm -hmm. But he was damn near. My son was a beautiful soul. He liked to go to Starbucks most mornings where he befriended an unlikely group of people. One of those friends tells CNN Nichols was a free-spirited person, a gentleman who marched to the beat of his own drum. He enjoyed skateboarding and taking pictures of sunsets. A friend who knew Nichols in Sacramento said this of him. He was his own person and didn't care. He didn't fit into what a traditional black man was supposed to be in California. He had such a free spirit and skating gave him his wings. For this to happen to him in this way, the pain is just, it's, it's I have no words. We are living in a moment of massive income and wealth inequality. Billionaires are getting richer. Working people are struggling. Uh, something like half of older workers in this country uh, have nothing saved for retirement. So the idea that under Trump, as you recall, we gave a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the very rich and large corporations, and now Republicans are coming back and saying, oh, guess what? We're really worried about the deficit, the national debt. We want to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and other programs that are vital importance, life and death importance to working families. I don't think they are going to get away with that. I think the American people say, no way, you're not going to do that. None other than our old friend Donald Trump who I disagree with, needless to say, on everything. Trump told the Republicans, hey, you're crazy. You can't cut Social Security and Medicare. And I think they're going to listen to him. All right. That last clip of Bernie Sanders, known to many of our listeners. And uh, prior to that, we heard a clip from CNN on the police killing, beating to death of Tyree Nichols. Now, this is all part of the trouble in the United States right now. This is 
our national front. And there, so there are a couple of things to cover here. Jackie Goldberg, we'll actually start with you, if that's okay. And I'm wondering, first off, with what's happening on the Hill, anything in particular that jumps out at you that you would like to comment on? And then, of course, you might want to comment on what is going on with Tyree Nichols. But um, there's been so much going on, Jackie, in the U.S., the level of violence, the, the mass shooting shootings, just 18 in in California, uh, just within a week. Um, Donald Trump is back on social media. There's a lot going on here. Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts? Well, my first thoughts are, of course, that this is going to be a crazy and wild two years because, in, in terms of national government, because we have a speaker who have, in, in essence, has no power. In large organizations, which I served in, not nearly as large as Congress, but the California State Assembly, if the Speaker of of the Assembly or the Speaker of the House has no way of marshalling their forces to vote in a direction, little can get done. And what the fear is on the debt ceiling is is that a handful, literally a handful of the far-right uh, Republicans will make it virtually impossible unless there's an alternative method. And the alternative method can really only probably be all Democrats plus a few Republicans who really don't want to see this country's economics be completely undermined by not raising the debt ceiling. The shocking thing to me is is how little seems to be concern in Washington over the raising of the debt ceiling. It's like I think people are assuming it's all going to be resolved. I don't see how they're so optimistic, to be very honest with you. The other things that are really amazing are the eliminating of certain Democrats from key important committees. I don't ever remember in partisan houses uh, this happening uh, without cause, and cause would be like the behavior of a person, like a person who's doing racist streets on their uh, websites, maybe you might remove from a committee. But to remove someone from a committee like Adam Schiff or uh, the others that they've taken off is retaliation, and we haven't seen that too much before either. So I think we are in big trouble in terms of the House of of representatives. And I think that that is a part of this general large kind of malaise that the country is in now. The mass shootings, we've had more mass shootings in January than there are days. So the amount of mass shootings that have occurred are, I do not think, unrelated to the fact that people have no confidence in institutions, which was exactly what the fascist, neo-fascist in America, one is to undermine the institution so that people have no faith in voting, have no faith in the police, have no faith in the FBI, have no faith in in anything. And it leads people to, I believe, believe that, it, that, that it's OK for them to take it in their own hands. Now, the one thing that I think I do want to mention about mass shootings is, is that almost 90 percent of them involve people who've been involved in domestic violence. And I think this makes us, if we really want to take a look at what's happening with mass shootings, I think we need to take care of that look at much greater and deeper look in America about domestic violence. Domestic violence is an enormous problem all over America in every part of this country. But as Bernie Sanders talks about it, it is more prevalent when you have 
disasters in your family economy, when people are afraid of losing housing, when people are afraid of evictions, when people don't think they can afford to feed their children every meal of every day. Uh, these kinds of things make people nuts, and and rightly so, because they don't see any end to it. And often that violence goes against a member of their own family first, but it is true that domestic violence was a part of almost 90% of the mass shootings in America in 2021. So I think what we have to see is, is that between the pandemic creating isolation and creating disconnection uh, between people we, with this notion, as the Memphis uh, police chief said, that somehow or another that humanity is no longer uh, the first thing you think of when confront, being confronting a, when police confront a potential uh, 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 person who's doing harm. These are all things which create an environment of violence, create an environment of uncertainty, create an environment of fear, which is stoked by Trump and MAGA. And now he's on Facebook again. It is a very difficult time for America. Yeah, absolutely. Jackie Goldberg, you know, just underscoring your point, too, about losing faith in institutions. I mean, all of this business about a mix up of what is truth and what is fake news. And you have the government of India on the one hand, basically saying they're going to mandate what the truth is. And of course, journalists objecting to that, obvious implications. But Jackie Goldberg, your thought, you think that there's definitely a connection with that point about the confusion of truth and fake news with the scenario that you just described, Jackie Goldberg? Well, I think it leads people who are already mentally stressed into believing that if they're, they are victims, which is what Trump tells everybody they are, unless they're a Democrat, they're victims. It leads them to believe that they should do something about being a victim. They should, the guy up in Half Moon Bay had been harassed and had been, in fact, underpaid. He was getting $9 an hour instead of $15.50. He was homeless. He had been harassed by the uh, leadership of the uh, farm worker leader there, and he was driven out of his mind by this. These things don't happen just out of nowhere. There are real causes. The causes include the extreme lack of mental health care in this country, it is not treated like an important issue in most healthcare plans. It's near impossible to get mental health support. So you have a, a variety of things coming together, a confluence of things coming together. Domestic violence largely not being addressed, in my opinion, is one of them. Many mass shooters get firearms they're prohibited from having because we don't have universal checks. There, there are so many things that we could do that would slow this down or stop it, but Congress has made it clear that it has no desire to do any of them. Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And Laura Carlson, in terms of uh, trouble in the U.S., trouble in the nation, and specifically uh, what's happening on Capitol Hill, any particular things that jump out at you? And uh, any thoughts, too? Um, we also played a clip of this horrific uh, beating of Tyree Nichols. Uh, Laura Carlson. Yeah, I think the debt issue, I agree, it's it's getting uh, less concern than it deserves. Bernie Sanders just called it a life and death issue, and it seems academic to many people. 
but it actually, uh, to working families, especially a life and death issue, but it actually, uh, you know, results in the furlough of workers, and in chaos in the markets, and could even lead to debt default for the first time in U.S. history and a deepening of the recession. Right now, they're at the borrowing limit, and an intentional default would be would be devastating. So essentially what's happening here is that the parties are playing with fire, especially the Republicans are playing with fire to block this to try to see who ends up getting burned. And that leads to really what I think is my biggest concern about what's happening on the Hill now. And that is what we're seeing is government as spectacle. They've got a divided Congress. So the kinds of, of, uh, proposals, the initiatives that the Republican Party is putting forth in the House, they know that they cannot become law. And instead, what they're doing is whipping up the most misogynist, white supremacist part of their base with bills like the anti-transgender rights bills that are shockingly hypocritical. They don't care at all about saving women's sports and the other types of ideas and have come out have come out openly and said, yeah, we're we're going after this issue because we find that it really rouses people, you know, and then the abortion issues, the uh, bills to stop attacks on pro-life facilities that don't even exist, the bill to uh, save uh, supposedly botched abortions. You know, none of these things are even real. They're myths, and yet they know that it could really stir people up in terms of of leading to the elections. So this is a dangerous way to approach government, to say the least. And it's not necessarily, um, you know, immune on the Democratic side. On the Democratic side, 70 Democrats called on Biden to eliminate the asylum restrictions. But will the rest of the party show some spine? Or will there be any break in this very conservative leadership for new voices to come up in time to offer some real solutions at the next next elections? We really don't know, and it's not looking very good. And then finally, I just wanted to comment on Jackie's on Jackie's comment that about the malaise that existed, and I think it, we can see it as even more structural. First of all, we're clearly looking at with the mass shootings. And even with the police brutality, you know, we're looking at at a general culture in which there is a great deal of despair by a lack of positive horizons for personal development. This is this is capitalism at this stage, and particularly for the working class. There's also a profile of perpetrators of the last 150 mass killings where they know. And they're calling them, the New York Times profiles, calling them deaths of despair um, and, and clearly calls for help and suicide. So they can't be prevented with harsh sentences, obviously. But they're also avoiding, as they talk about what causes this, what are the structural causes? There's a toxic patriarchy that leads men who are feeling that they're under attack, that they're losing their privileges, that they don't have control of their lives to um, aggression and the link between not just domestic violence, but misogyny and uh, violence against women in all forms 
the link between that and the profiles of these mass killers who are almost overwhelmingly, almost exclusively men, you know, is very, very strong. And yet the newspapers don't really talk about that. And they don't talk about the link to what happens under capitalism when um, even white males who previously enjoyed privileges begin to lose those as the working, as the elite class absorbs everything. So we're seeing a very, very difficult and terrible situation. It's, it's in, in tremendously impressive, this, this fact that there are more days, that there are more shootings in January than days in the month so far. That's just unthinkable a very short time ago. The gun control laws have not been able to really progress except for at a state level. And then finally, just to make the, con the, con the connection to that this, it, this availability of guns, that means a six-year-old can take a gun to school and shoot his teacher, even though there were three reports that the child had a gun. People don't take this seriously either in many cases, also affects other countries. There's a group of legislators who have called for the Ar America's regional monitoring of arms sales because of the illegal arms trafficking with this proliferation of arms in the United States and lack of control that is affecting uh, you know, the, the organized crime and the homicides in Mexico. 70% of homicides in Mexico can be traced to U.S. guns. So it's an entire culture. It's an entire business that has to be confronted. And so far, we have not seen the political will necessary to do it. Right. Thank you for that analysis there and your thoughts, Laura Carlson. By the way, just for our listeners who are wondering about the flap about the, the debt ceiling, according to the the Wall Street Journal, U.S. government securities are really a heart, the bedrock of global financial systems. So a default could really cause investors, and to quote the Wall Street Journal, to lose trust in treasury securities, causing widespread disruptions in financial markets. And that failing to raise the debt ceiling could lead ratings firms to downgrade the U.S. debt, which could raise borrowing costs. And already Standard & Poor's, according to this report, had downgraded, excuse me, U.S. federal debt for the first time in 2011. And who knows if we're facing that again. And Dr. Horn also, before having you comment on all of this, in terms of police shootings, the shootings of the murder of Tyree Nichols, very much in the news headlines. We can't forget that in Los Angeles, California, in a week, three people, young men were killed, all of color, 45-year-old Takir Smith, Keenan Anderson, who is a cousin of Patrice Cullors, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and Oscar Sanchez, a Latinx man. So Dr. Horn, your thoughts on anything jumping out at you in terms of what's coming out at the Hill, but also these other issues around police shootings, mass killings, et cetera, Dr. Gerald Horn. I think many issues are involved, among which I think is an ideological collapse, not least on the U.S. left. What I mean is your listeners may or may not be aware that you have people in the United States who consider themselves to be radical, yet they resist a radical interpretation of the founding of the United States and the contemporary politics of the United States. For example, how can you discuss the proliferation of arms on the streets 
without discussing the Second Amendment? And how can you discuss the Second Amendment to the Constitution without discussing the fact that it was designed to create militias, particularly of the settlers, so that they could rout and roust rebellions by the enslaved and by the indigenous population? Likewise, it's remarkable that many on the left then in turn direct vitriol and venom at those of us who are seeking to engage in a radical interpretation or a revised interpretation, not only myself, but uh, people like Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project. But it's worse than that because a Pulitzer Prize in history was awarded a few years ago to a book entitled The Eternal Enemy. Guess who the internal enemy was? Of course, it was Black people. And so how can you discuss credibly the spectacle of officers of the state gunning down Black people like they're hogs and dogs without some realistic interpretation of U.S. history, which many on the left resist stoutly and adamantly? How can you discuss the fact that there is serious discussion and debate about removing police officers from engaging in traffic stops because routine traffic stops oftentimes lead to the deaths of Black people, such as happened in Memphis, such as happened in Texas with Sandra Bland. So until we're able to come to a realistic understanding of how we got to this point, a historically grounded and materialist understanding, it, we're going to continually be befuddled and baffled by these mass killings. Now, with regard to what's happening on Capitol Hill, it's apparent that January 6, 2021, was a blitzkrieg attempt at a coup d'etat, at a prevention of the peaceful transfer of power. What happened in January 2023 with the election of Kevin McCarthy as speaker is the beginning of a slow motion coup d'etat. And the debt ceiling shows that the Freedom Caucus and the neo-fascist right are not only willing to destabilize the United States economy, they're willing to destabilize capitalism itself for their aims. Now, what's striking is that that should not be surprising because after all, their ideological ancestors in 1861 sought to overthrow the U.S. government in order to perpetuate slavery forevermore. So once again, until we have a better handle, a better grip on how we got to this point, I don't think we're going to be able to come up with any reasonable remedies as to how to dig ourselves out of the deep hole in which we find ourselves. Yes, and, and Dr. Horn, um, much is being made, of course, that in the case of Tyree, the beating of Tyree Nichols, there were five Black police officers involved. By the way, there were also two members of the fire department who were fired. The five officers have seven felony charges, one count of second degree murder, one count of aggravated assault, two aggravated kidnapping, two counts, two counts of official misconduct, one count of official oppression. And we also are seeing very visible that the police chief in Memphis, Tennessee, is a Black woman. Now, I suppose, you know, people are, understand it's very clear when there are white police officers involved in these kinds of heinous crimes to make the connections. But as those of us 
from majority Black countries, whether it's in the Caribbean, on the continent, Haiti is an example of that. We know very well that someone being the same color as you, i.e. a Black person, doesn't necessarily mean that they're on your side or they are not working and functioning and acting like an arm of the state that has oppressed all of us. Dr. Horn, just your thoughts on on this point. Well, again, this is nothing new. If you look at the 1811 slave revolt in Louisiana, the largest and most contentious in U.S. history, it was suppressed in no small measure because free men of color helped to destabilize it. If you look at Gabriel's revolt in Virginia in 1800, uh, Denmark Vesey in uh, South Carolina about 200 years ago, uh, these revolts were betrayed by people of African descent. When we're talking about white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism, we're talking about a system. And we know that that system can be defended even by those who are its ostensible victims. And I think that a growing number of people, at least in the Black community, are coming to realize that. And I think we'll get a glimpse of that later today when this video is released. And you will see, I'm sure, an outpouring in the streets that will not be restrained simply because the accused officers happen to be melanin rich. Right. Thank you for that, Dr. Horn. And I I always like to encourage folks to read Franz Fanon, uh, in particular to read uh, Black Skin, uh, White Mass, but all of his work, because he actually says something about this, about Black people shooting each other, et cetera, and putting it in a a wider context. So uh, thank all of our panelists. Uh, Right now, we are going to take a station break. And when we return, Uh, We're going to start off the second part of our show uh, with the Ukraine, and then after the Ukraine, about the crisis going on in Peru. Stay with us. Our panelists will be here. You won't want to miss one word of what they have to say. We'll be right back. Come on in, America. Ah. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. The saga continues. Morning America, a new day. We got a hectic schedule ahead of us. The letter K, D O T, and space like Microsoft. All righty, and that song, Kendrick Lamar, Good Morning America. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And nationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Memphis, Tennessee. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Russia. Yeah, we do have a few there as well. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We also want to welcome all of the Pacifica flagship and affiliate stations that carries Sojourner Truth across the country. We're happy to have you as part of the Sojourner Truth family there. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. Now, the Ukraine-Russia war quickly approaching its one-year mark. 
by the middle of February of 2023. Earlier this week, Germany, the UK, and the US agreed to send battle tanks to the Ukraine, and Russia responded by launching a wave of 55 missiles um, at the Ukraine. Now, the majority of population in Germany, it's reported, did not agree to Germany's decision to send tanks. But other countries providing tanks include Poland, the Netherlands, Spain, Norway. Altogether, there are about 12 countries who are part of this so-named tank brigade. The U.S. plans to send 31 M1 Abrams battle tanks using, by the way, fracked dirty gas from the U.S. Uh, the $400 million package includes funding for 31 Abrams tanks, uh, the size of Ukrainian tank battalion, ammunition rounds, support vehicles, and other equipment. The tanks, though, the Abrams tanks, aren't expected to arrive in the Ukraine in months. Now, the U.S. has spent $3.75 billion in U.S. military assistance to the Ukraine to date, and the Biden administration has asked for an additional $907 million of foreign military finances, financing under the additional Ukraine Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2022. This has yet to be voted on by Congress. Now, it's reported that Russia has spent some $82 billion in the nine months since the start of its war against Ukraine. It's estimated that 40,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed, in addition to perhaps 100,000 Ukrainian military casualties. About 6.8 million Ukrainians have left the country, while about 6.6 .6 million are internally displaced, this according to reports. And meanwhile, there are winds on the part of Ukraine, winds on the side of, of, of Russia. Sweden has announced that it's pledged 20 million Swedish krona to the International Atomic Energy Agency to support its nuclear safety mission in Ukraine. So there's quite a lot going on there. We want to hear from our panelists on this. But let us go now to a clip from CNBC discussing more about Germany's part in all of this with the tanks. Let's go to that clip now. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a very significant move because if you look at the development of public opinion over the last couple of weeks and months on that question, it has uh, been a very polarizing and polarized debate, um, this whole conversation about tanks deliveries um, to Ukraine. And that has remained you know, stubbornly unchanged, really this more or less 50-50 divide in the, in the German population. So against that backdrop, I think that explains a lot of the hesitation that we've seen from, from Olaf Scholz at first, this kind of insistence on really, you know, like carefully going through all the options. Uh, and he's ultimately come to that, to that decision, which uh, I think if you look at the final outcome of what has been agreed yesterday between, mainly between Germany and the United States, um, I would say it's a success for, for what Olaf Scholz had, had proposed from, from the very beginning. Kustler, can, can you help me understand something here and maybe some of our audience? Because I think um, just looking at the, the position of those who would not like to supply tanks, I think we're struggling to understand exactly what the resistance is it about. It is, about. Is, is, is it something historical left over from the uh, conflict in the middle of the last century in Europe that has, I don't know, in some way tied Russia and Germany 
intimately together or is it about business contracts in the future or is there some other reason why there is this deep-seated resistance in Germany to supply this offensive technology? Yeah, I think those two motivations, right, A, the historical dimension and B, the business links, that is a lot of the stuff that we've been hearing about, especially in the, in the English-speaking uh, media, right, over, over the last couple of weeks and, and, and months in this conversation. But I think we also need to focus on more, let's say, strategic considerations. Let's be very clear. Let's look at something what a uh, certain Donald Rumsfeld once, once called the unknown unknowns, right? I think the reality is that with this completely changed strategic and security situation, this new, well, very, very direct stance of military conflict uh, that Russia is involved in on, on European soil, it is, of course, very much uncharted territory um, that, that, that we're moving in here. Um, and I think against that backdrop, there is a significant share of the population that simply wants its government if it decides to deliver tanks, to tread very carefully, point one, and B, to, well, follow the line that Olaf Scholz has, has followed. And that is, um, you know, don't rely too much on German or European leadership. Make sure that the United States is involved. Dr. Gerald Hord, we're actually going to start with you in terms of the Ukraine. A lot going on there. Germany was very hesitant for a while. Now they are being dragged into all of this in terms of providing tanks to Ukraine. Russia is responding, saying this is a tremendous escalation of the war and seeing it as a move against Russia. A lot of global implications here. Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, I would like to point your audience to a striking piece that you can read in translation. I'm speaking of the piece uh, with the well-known French intellectual Emmanuel Todd in Le Figaro, where he suggests that we're on the brink of World War III uh, with Russia and China on one side of the barricades and the United States and its North Atlantic allies on the other. And it's unclear to him, at least, if North Atlantic imperialism will emerge intact from this bruising confrontation, which then brings us to another uh, interesting interview that appeared in the German press with a former chief advisor, military advisor to Chancellor Merkel, who suggested that Germany needs to evacuate its position from Ukraine immediately because of the possibilities enunciated by Emmanuel Todd. The problem, of course, is that in Germany, the right-wing forces, speaking of the alternative for Germany, they have been the most dovish, whereas the Greens, uh, who hold the foreign ministry amongst other cabinet positions, have been the most hawkish. But I think that wiser heads in Berlin recognize that what's happening right now is quite dangerous in the sense that Poland has a reparations claim against Germany for over a trillion dollars because of depredations committed by Berlin over 80 years ago. At the same time, Poland is the major entry point for all of these weapons. It's building up its military. And even though there are those who think that Poland could be turned against Russia, uh, it's not beyond the bounds of imagination to envision down the road of Poland along with this historic ally, speaking of Lithuania, not to mention the other Baltics, such as Latvia and Estonia, perhaps underwritten by the United States, uh, turning against old Europe, uh, speaking of Germany, and its uh, reliable thus far partner, uh, speaking of France. The danger with these tanks is that, number one, it sends an ominous signal about escalation, 
At the same time that some of these tanks, A, may not arrive for 12 months or so, and the war could be concluded by then, and B, the United States in particular is not sending its top-of-the-line tanks uh, to Central and Eastern Europe, which then leaves the impression that this is sort of a, a cover-your-butt exercise. That is to say that the United States does not want to be in the position of saying it did not do all that it could, and that's why it's having this uh, attempt to send tanks. At the same time, if you send tanks, already the cry is that now there should be fighter jets, now there should be submarines, next there should be nuclear weapons, and at the same time, we recognize that to a significant degree, we're talking about boomerang billions. That is to say, Congress and the White House are ostensibly sending billions in our tax money to Central and Eastern Europe as homelessness continues to rise in this country. But we all know that those billions actually are then redirected back across the Atlantic uh, to Raytheon, uh, to General Dynamics, uh, to Boeing, to Lockheed, so that their executives could feather their nests and build more McMansions in Falls Church, Virginia, and in Chevy Chase, Maryland. So this whole exercise is scandalous. And what's even perhaps more dangerous is not only the failure of the Greens to engage this crisis, but the split in the U.S. peace movement which has meant that even though we may be on the brink of World War III, we do not see people in the streets raising their voices. Right. Thank you, uh, Dr. Horn. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, we're actually going to go to you next. You were very active in the peace movement in your university days there. And who's paying the price for all of this as the arms manufacturers are likely laughing all the way to the bank? Are civilians in the Ukraine are the the widows and mothers and family members of those Russian soldiers uh, who are who are being killed? You know, it does beg the question of war. Uh, what is it good for? Um, going back to that song, but also Jackie Goldberg, an expert from the International Institute for Strategic Studies based in London, has said, "quote No single weapon system or platform can be a game changer." And another expert is saying that the the mishmash of different systems being sent will make it quite difficult from a logistical point. And then there are concerns about training the Ukrainian military to use these weapons. And, you know, perhaps that training may take place on the ground at the U.S. base in Germany. Another point to Jackie Goldberg is that we see the militarization, I mean, after World War II, Two, uh, there was a lot of concern about both Japan and Germany building up weapons, and we certainly see that happening right now. Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on all this? Well, you know, it's it's very grave, <clears throat> and of course, some of the things that are getting little attention are the impact on Russia violating the fundamental principles of child protection in wartime. You know, right now the Russians are giving nationality to children in captured areas. They are uh, sending them and to be adopted uh, back in Russia by Russian families. So th th there's abductions of children, and children are certainly uh, being uh, impacted uh, heavily in terms of uh, everything that is going on. The peace movement is, hard, is split because, on the one hand, 
we believe that there should be some negotiations and should be some looking at the end of it. But the Kremlin, of course, believes that only Biden has the key to the end of the conflict and that Biden should direct Kiev to settle. That's not going to happen. That's not the role of another country that's supporting someone. But I do think that we have not had heard enough about how does one end this war. And that's what I am disturbed by. Uh, all of the discussions are how to increase who has what kinds of weapons and how many people have been killed. I saw today that 109 Russians were killed by uh, Ukrainian forces. All of this undermines the ability to have additional and additional weapons undermines the ability to seek peace. However, Russia seems not interested in anything except taking over major parts of the country, so peace will not be easy to, to do. Uh, I'm, I'm very concerned that we have not seen <clears throat> uh, much in the way of discussions about how the war could be ended uh, on the part of anybody, on the part of Zelensky. Uh, well, he has his own view. Yes, he has, uh, he has made it clear. Only when all the Russians are gone from our border. Okay, I got that. But there are no other kinds of folks who are... are talking about what should be the conditions to end this war. How do you get the Russians to stop doing this? And I don't think it's by escalating uh, the weapons. I'm also very worried uh, about the fact that you have the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency saying that there is still no security zone around the plant, which is the largest uh, nuclear plant in the area, and it's uh, Russian-occupied. So I think the dangers in the region are still enormous, and the fact that the Russians are attacking uh, things like electricity and water supply is, of course, certainly makes them criminals. Right, and uh, war, the horrors, the horrors of war. Uh, Laura Carlson, we would like to hear your thoughts on, on the Ukraine. But before doing that, I also want to share this clip about Peru, because that is a hot spot. I mean, it's, you know, some people are saying, well, close to practically a civil war going on there. So I'd like to uh, play that clip. People may know Peru in the midst of a political and, and civil uh, crisis, weeks of protests, um, not only in the capital city, but also in indigenous areas throughout the country. Um, the uh, Machu Picchu, a former indigenous uh, site, likely still a sacred site, uh, now an international tourist destination has been shut down. Glencoe Copper Mines, you know, copper is a huge industry in Peru, has also uh, shut down. And meanwhile, um, the organization of American states has uh, come in uh, backing the unpopular uh, president uh, now of uh, Peru, uh, Dina Buliarte. So let's go to that clip. And then, Laura, you could basically talk about both Ukraine as well as Peru. Let's go to the Peru clip now. After weeks of violent anti-government protests that have left scores of people dead, the Organization of American States gave Peru's president its full support. Via teleconference, President Dina Boluarte told the council she'd made moves to hold early elections to end the country's unrest. I've asked Congress to approve the early elections as soon as possible, and I sincerely hope that the friendly countries of the region will support them. 
Demonstrators have taken to the streets for almost seven weeks, calling for Boluarte's removal, who they say is responsible for a heavy-handed crackdown by security forces that's taken dozens of lives. Whilst it began in the country's south, protesters have poured into the capital for mass demonstrations to keep up the pressure. As well as for her resignation, they're demanding a rewritten constitution and immediate elections. Just days ago, the Peruvian leader ruled out resigning, but called for a national truce, something that the people say won't happen. There is no truce. There can be no truce with a murderer, nor with Congress acting as dictator. We're going to stay in the streets until she's removed and Congress is thrown out. We want everyone to leave. Peru's Congress is due to hold a final vote to ratify bringing forward the elections from 2026 to 2024. This after the violence erupted after former President Pedro Castillo was ousted last December after illegally attempting to dissolve the legislature and judiciary. All righty. There you go, Uh, Laura Carlson. Perhaps we will start with the situation of Peru, which is going from uh, crisis uh, to crisis. And of course, the elected, the democratically elected president, Pedro Castillo, he basically is now serving time in prison. Allegedly, um, well, he did try to uh, basically disband parliament, but now the protesters are also demanding precisely that, that this, he was replaced by uh, Dina Uliate, who was with his party, his vice president, but she shifted her position to make an alliance with right-wing uh, forces. And according to Al Jazeera, some 100 people have been killed now, and um, it has really brought to the attention of the world the, the not only the economic, but the racial divides uh, going on in, in Peru. Uh, Laura, please comment on that. And if there's time, anything you want, might want to add on the Ukraine, Laura Carlson. That's exactly right. And we've been watching the situation very closely in the, in the Americas program, talking to correspondents and analysts in Peru about what's going on. The numbers are not entirely known. It's somewhere between 60 and 100 people that have been killed. There's been a national strike called. And increasingly, these groups of indigenous people and rural people, especially from southern Peru, are going to Lima where they feel like their voices can be heard and they're less likely to be shot down in the streets, which is what is happening in the more indigenous populations and cities. This has created a standoff, even though the Castillo government made a lot of mistakes. He's a rural teacher and was the first time really that people felt like someone who represented them, who came from their backgrounds, was finally in power. So he he's they're not calling for him to come back in office, but they are calling for a new government in which they can define their own rep- representation and immediate elections. The government proposal to hold elections in 2024 is insane. If you take into account that in only six weeks, the security forces have killed somewhere between 60 and 100 people, then by 2024, we'll be looking at genocide because the people who are being killed are mostly indigenous people. The racism is profound in Peru, and it's being expressed in this face-off between the Peruvian corrupt elite that has always had control for the last you know, decades and the demand of people with this pent-up 
lack of human rights, pent up lack of real representation or democracy and rage at the way that the repression has been shooting them down in the street. With those demands, there has to be a significant change within the system. This polarization has been described as pro-establishment and anti-establishment. The analyst Carlos Melendez describes it as the right and center-right, security forces, big business, commercial media, and the upper and middle classes in Lima, where a third of the population lives, against basically the impoverished rural population, informal sector, and, and indigenous people. The police apparently have orders to shoot to kill because that's what uh, the autopsies or the analysis of these deaths is showing. They're calling the protesters terrorists and drug traffickers and Indians because to them Indians is a, is a derogatory term. And they're fighting for their democracy. This is why we should all be very aware of what's happening in Peru. They're fighting for their democracy, but also for a different society, for their rights against mining projects, for labor's rights and women's rights and environmental protection. They're in the streets. They're risking their lives. And they have the full, full force of their own institutions against them with the right-wing president now of Dina Boluarte, but also with the pro-U.S. establishment under Luis Almagro and the university in the organization, excuse me, of American states. So there's so much at stake and there hasn't been enough attention from solidarity movements and human rights groups in, in the others. Just two minutes on Ukraine. I think it's really important when they played the clip to say, well, why are people opposing these tanks to say it's not just, uh, you know, for historical or other reasons. It be, it's because this kind of escalation in the belief of the peace movements will not lead to peace. There is no way that a military solution can happen here. The military strategy is not viable, and the obstacle is not just Russia. We've seen the all-in attitude of Joe Biden. Zelensky will only negotiate when all the Russians are gone, which is not a, a really feasible position in terms of dialogue. And the role of the press is hyping the war and destruction. Meanwhile, we've got General Dynamics, the makers of these tanks, $60 billion from U.S. coffers that has gone to Ukraine. And Code Pink estimates that it's like half to military contractors. So the dynamics yeah. to make a perpetual war are very strong and we're not fighting back hard enough. Right. On that note, I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. Another really fascinating roundtable. Just tremendous analysts, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. So we are lucky to have you on these airwaves. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, our engineer. That is Mr. Gary Baca. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacific Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more programming on your local station. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend and stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.